Hey there, I'm Brittany, and welcome to the Cape Cod Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at capecodchurch.com. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy this message in our current series. Well, good morning. So many of you have kindly asked me, how was Florida? And my answer is, it was 82 degrees. Uh, you know, so, but it is, you know, there is no place like home. So it is so good to be here back with you. So I'm going to make this easy. For the next six or seven weeks, we're going to be in one chapter. So you're going to know every week, here's where we're going. So if you've got a Bible and you want to open it up, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. Right up to Easter and through it. Romans chapter 8. So how to begin this? Well, maybe the place we should begin is in Rome. The city of Rome. But let's, let's start in 64 AD. History buffs, you'll, you might remember that date as the year that Rome burned. You may remember the, uh, the old, uh, maybe true, maybe not, of Nero fiddling while Rome burned. But here's what we do know. Much of Rome was destroyed. And in the aftermath, Nero found his scapegoat. They were Christians. He decided to blame the fire on Christians. Christians were a, they were an annoying nuisance along with the Jews, much because they refused to worship an emperor as one of the gods, which seemed like the most reasonable thing to Nero. After all, it was a polytheistic environment and everybody had lots of gods. What's the problem with one more? Well, The Jews thought there was a big problem, and here come the Christians, a whole new group, and they worship just one God. Well, here was Nero's chance to crush them like a bug. Blame the destruction of Rome on them, and he did. Pinned it right on them. That'll hurt your marketing efforts. That'll put an end to Christianity. Except it didn't. In fact, (laughs) history reveals that the period between 60 A.D. and 300 A.D. was the period of maybe the fastest growth ever for Christianity. In the midst of rabid persecution, Nero went on a mission to eradicate Rome of Christians. Feed them to the lions, burn them as candles at his parties. And yet it had the exact opposite effect. Christianity flourished. It spread like wildfire until by 300 AD, Constantine, the emperor, decided kind of advantageously to make Christianity the 
main religion, the approved religion of the kingdom, his religion. That's another story, and that's a problem. But the point was, by 300 AD, there were so many of them that (laughs) if you can't beat them, join them. But for almost 250 years, they tried to beat them. So what happened? Why didn't they run? Why didn't they flee? Why didn't they give up? Why didn't they recant? Why didn't they add Nero as another god? Hmm. Well, maybe to understand a little bit, you could go back from 64 AD just 8 or 10 years. 55, let's call it. I don't know the exact date. But right around that time, a woman named Phoebe comes to Rome. And she's carrying a manuscript. We would call it a book now. They called it a letter. You hold it in your hands as the book of Romans. It was Paul's most magnificent work. And he had passed it off to this leading woman in the church, Phoebe, and sent her with commendation to the city of Rome to read it, to explain it. And there she is. And she's telling the church, some commentators think she would have memorized it, so important it was so that she could recite it for the church, answer questions about it. She begins to walk through this book for this group of believers who Paul has never met in the city of Rome. Word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We've added the chapters. It helps us to break down the book. And then, and then she would get to chapter 8. It, it 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 was like everything was rising to this moment. Chapter 8. If you had to give chapter 8 a title, I like this one. The Secret Life of Confident People. It was like he's been just rolling this story out and now... He wants to unfold to you the secret life of confident people. This book would so embolden believers that they would face death fearlessly. Their faith so solid, not even an emperor bound on eradicating them could shake it. The secret life of confident people. That one chapter includes words that if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll remember. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purposes. If God is for us, who can be against us? See what I mean? 
It's all right there in chapter 8. It's like he's been coming to this point. Let me read to you this verse in a moment just where he just launches into it because it is, it is the story of confident people. But maybe before, before we read it, maybe what is, what is confidence? Like what is, this would be a great conversation on the way home. What does confidence look like? <laughs> Have you ever seen a person and thought, my goodness, they look so confident. Tam and I were flying home. We were watching a, a movie on the screen and it was Tom Cruise. Such a confident character. And then I remembered, I first remember his, his introduction movies. Remember those? One of his first, Top Gun. Let me help you out. That was 40 years ago. Yeah, that's when Tom Cruise became a thing. I was in high school, Top Gun, 1986. I'm ready to graduate. Everybody got aviator glasses. True story. I still got them. Some Ray-Bans, man. Wow. <laughs> I remember people walking around high school with a certain strut. I don't even know why, holding their books like this. So cool. But the confidence we're talking about is more than eyewear and struts, right? We're looking at something that comes from the inside out, not the outside in. It's easy to buy a pair of glasses or to walk with a little bit of swagger. But to be a truly confident person has to begin in here. And that's exactly what Paul does. Here's what he says. In verse 1, he begins by saying, therefore, now, one of the great lessons of understanding the Bible is when you see therefore, ask what it's there for. Paul is in seven chapters laying out a story, and now he's ready, therefore. Here's one thing to know about how Paul often framed his arguments. He's trying to convince you of something. And often it's been described as he would, he would show you a flower in bud form. And, 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 and like, the, like you know there's a flower there and then you start peeling it back and slowly but surely the flower is unveiled. And that's what he's going to do here. He's going to show you the flower at its, at its very beginning, just in a bud and maybe a little bit of color. And here's how he does it. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> there is now, therefore, no condemnation. He's, he's given you the picture. He's going to unwrap it in a moment. He's going to show you how. He's going to show you why. He's going to convince you in your soul that it's true. But he wants to tell you up front. Here's the truth. There is now 
no condemnation. None. Let that stick somewhere deep down in your soul. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's like he's attacking the most insecure part of us. It's like he's going into our soul and he's like, let me just mess with that thing that's messing with you. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And every part of us wants to say, well, 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 what about, and what about, and what about? And so he's not done. Here's what he says in verse two. He said, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit who gives you life sets you free versus the law of sin and death. In other words, he says, that, listen, there's a battle in you. There's a fight. The law of the Spirit is between what God is doing and, and, and the law of the mind. And, and in fact, this is where going back and seeing what the therefore is there for. Listen to what he said, just verses before in chapter 7, but really just, just a few verses before, he says in verse 21, he explains this. He says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me. Waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Just how miserable is this fight that's in me, this battle, these voices going back and forth. Who, he says, who will rescue me from the body, this body that is subject to death, thanks Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself and my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. He says there's a, there's a battle. It's a, the, the, the battle between what God is doing and what sin is doing. This battle is at play in my life. And I, I, I just, because this is language many of us will understand. There's a, there's a battle of voices. There's a there's a voice in your head. That's how we phrase it. There's a voice in your head. And it's real. And it's wrong. It's real and it's wrong. There's a voice. There's a battle. And it's ugly. And it condemns you. I don't mean to say sometimes we hear there's a voice and we think like there's an audible voice or it even shows up as words. It's not. It's the, the spiral of negativity. It's the, 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 the dark valley. It's the doom. It's the gloom. It's the hopelessness. He said, there's a battle inside of me. There's these, these, these voices like, this, this voice is, it's ugly. 
And sometimes it feels like it's winning. I was reading a couple weeks back an article. They said it at Kruger National Park, which is in South Africa. It's one of those game preserves. And they were doing research. And to do this, they went to a watering hole where they just knew that vast amounts of animals came to feed. And often predators would come because they knew that everybody was coming to the watering hole. And so they set up they set up trail cameras and then they set up speakers. They put these big speakers because they wanted to see what would happen when the animals heard the voice or the sound of a lion. They get nervous. The sound of a dog, the hyena. They get nervous, spooked. Sound of a gun, nervous, spooked. Sound of a human, run like crazy. True story. The sound of a human was more terrifying than the sound of a lion, than the sound of a gun, than the sound of a pack of dogs. They ran twice as quick, terrifying voices. I read that and I thought about these, 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 these voices, this, this overwhelming sometimes sense inside of us that we can't escape. And You see, the voice tells you what you've done and what's been done to you, and it says you're worthless. Because of what you've done or because of what someone's done to you, You have no value, you have no worth. And our self-worth fades away. And then it says, this is what you'll do and this is what people will do to you. And it says, you're hopeless. Why even try? Just give up. You're worthless. You're hopeless. You're worthless and you're hopeless. You're worthless and you're hopeless. And that voice, that dark cloud of negativity roils over inside of us and it condemns us. You're worthless and you're hopeless. Is it any wonder we all struggle with insecurity? Is it any wonder you're worthless, you're hopeless? And into that space comes a still small voice and it begins by saying this hey there is no condemnation none but the voice fights back it did that can't be because I know what I've done and I know how many times I've done it and I know what people have done to me and what it says about me. 
I know how many times I've failed and I'm pretty sure I'm going to fail again. I feel worthless. I feel hopeless. And so Paul, Paul, Paul's not done. Verse 1, for context, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then in verse 3, he says, let me explain. He's peeling back the flower. He says, verse 3, he says, For what the law, that's the Old Testament law, the rules, the regulations, was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. In other words, our inability, as if rules could make everything right. Just make a rule and everybody will do right. It doesn't work. Why? Because our flesh is weak and we're unable. It's like saying, hey, change the way you're thinking. But we're trapped. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And then this, to be a sin offering. Paul picks a very certain word here. He, he, he calls it a, a sin offering. That was a specific type of Old Testament offering. It was a, a blood sacrifice where you would come and you would offer up a, a sacrifice of an animal and it shed blood. And you would offer it with a confession. But the sin offering was unique because it was, it was an offering for those who had committed a sin unwittingly or unwillingly. Which reminds me of what Jesus said on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Well, that's odd. I thought they did know what they were doing. <laughs> we didn't understand the full implications. We didn't. We didn't understand what was at stake. We, we didn't even understand what was happening inside of us and so it says that, that Jesus came as a sin offering. And then it says this, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. In other words, the, the judgment on sin, the condemnation on brokenness and sin. The wrath was not just poured, it wasn't poured out on Jesus, it was poured out on sin in the body of Jesus. Sin was going to be condemned. There's no condemnation because God has brought the condemnation on sin in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Just the way in the Old Testament they would take a, a sacrifice, which is, which is foreign to us. We don't, we don't offer sacrifices. And they would offer a sacrifice, an animal that would be with a confession. And it was a way of covering that, that sin of 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 providing forgiveness. And he's saying that now, once for all in Jesus, there's no condemnation. There's nothing. He's forgiven it. 
That's why we don't offer sacrifices anymore. There's one sacrifice for all of time in Jesus Christ. Settled. But we remember that sacrifice. We remember it in the act of baptism. The Sunday after Easter, we'll be baptizing. And we, we offer that picture of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In a few weeks, the Wednesday before uh, Easter, we'll celebrate communion together. And in communion, the Lord's Supper, we, we remember, we memorialize his sacrifice for us. Because in that place, he took on himself the condemnation so that we could be forgiven, set free. But here's how the prophet Isaiah described this. In Isaiah chapter 53, he says, But he, speaking forward about Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That's what Jesus did for us. That's why Paul steps in and says, there is now no condemnation. There's one more verse I want to come to because it goes with this passage in verse 4, Romans 8, 4. He finishes by saying this. He says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be met in us, this is why Jesus did this, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He says, because of Jesus, we do not have to live according to the flesh, according to the voice, the brokenness inside of us. We're not captured by that because we have a new voice. We have a new spirit, the spirit of God, which sets us free. In other words, he says, I want to tell you what's true about you. And here's what's true about you. The spirit. The Spirit of God is in you and He's real and He's right. And He says, There is now no condemnation. That's the new voice. The voice inside of you that shouts back against the voice that says, You're worthless. I know what you did. I know what people have done to you. You're worthless. You're hopeless. But into that comes a, a, a new voice, and the new voice, oh, it's powerful. By the way, there was one more part to that, that story about Kruger National Park. They were, they were doing the research. They had set up their speakers and their trail cameras and they would watch as the animals would flee when the voices came on, the, the roaring lion. and They would get nervous and start to scatter the sound of a gun, the dogs, the voice of a human and they're fleeing. Except for one group. 
the elephants. True story. Apparently, you do not mess with elephants. The elephants, when they heard, especially the voice of the lion, the elephants banded together and crushed the speakers. Love that. End of experiment. Can't you just see all the elephants backing away, looking around at one another and then advancing? Whew. I can just hear them trumpeting to one another, seeking out the sound. That's what I picture when I picture the voice of Christ in us. And that little megaphone saying, you're worthless and you're hopeless, you're worthless and you're hopeless, you're worthless and you're hopeless. And here comes the voice of God in us saying, you're forgiven and you're free. You're free to live the full life I made you for. You're no longer a slave. You're not condemned. You've been set free because of Jesus Christ. You're not worthless. You're forgiven. You're not, you're not hopeless. You've been set free and you are free to live the full life I made you for because I dwell in you. And how does he begin it? There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't miss that last part. You see, when you, when you entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, when you humbled yourself before him and accept his gift, his sacrifice, his forgiveness given through the cross, when you accept that as your gift, he comes to dwell inside of you and inside of you is a new voice. I'm not saying you can't ignore that voice. I'm not saying you haven't pushed it into a corner so often that you forgot what it sounded like. I'm saying that voice dwells in you and never leaves you once you have accepted Christ and he dwells in you. And sometimes we just have to, we have to renew our ear, lean into his voice to hear him say, <laughs> you're forgiven, you're forgiven, and you're, you're free to live the full life I made you for. There's no condemnation. And maybe, maybe you're, 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 you're listening to all this and Jesus, is, Jesus has been for you an historical figure of the past. Or maybe a religious figure of your childhood. But he hasn't become your savior. You haven't come to that moment where you humbled yourself before him and you just embraced him as Savior. 
forgiver. Your sacrifice once and for all. Because when you do that, he comes to dwell in you and his voice begins to shout, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. You're set free, you're set free. That's what he does for us. And so I want to finish by giving you an opportunity, if you haven't done that, if you haven't just taken that humble opportunity to embrace Christ as your Savior, to invite you to do that right here. What better way to end these first four verses of Romans? Would you bow with me? Our heads are, are bowed and just we close our eyes just to give the moment a little bit of, of privacy. Maybe even more so just to allow you to lean into what God is saying to you. Do you, do you sense that he's calling you, inviting you to embrace him as your savior? If that's you, I just want to invite you in the quiet of the moment to pray to him. A couple of chapters later in Romans chapter 10, it will say something, a paraphrase. When a man or a woman believes in their heart and then confesses with their mouth, it becomes their moment of salvation. And I'm inviting you to do that, to take the belief of your heart and in a prayer, confess it. You might pray something like this, Dear God, you know me, everything about me. You know everything I've done, every place I've struggled, every secret I've kept. You know every reason I feel worthless. And I believe you love me. And I believe you died for me so that I could be forgiven, so that I could have new life. And I invite you into my life. I need to hear your voice to know your forgiveness your salvation thank you help me to live my life fully for you I pray in Jesus name